1: Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment, and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith, and we're recording this programme at the Cambridge Science Centre in the company of this very fine audience. We also have four marine experts with us who will tell us who they are and where they come from. I'm Lloyd Peck,
2: I work for the British Antarctic Survey and my work is really all about animals that live at very extreme cold temperatures.
3: I'm Viola Ross-Smith, I work at the British Trust for Ornithology and I specialise in seabirds.
2: And I'm Mark Spaulding, I work for the
0: Nature Conservancy, a conservation organisation and I have kind of big picture view of coral reefs and mangrove forests around the world.
4: I'm Bill Amos. I work in the Department of Zoology, and I'm interested in the genetics of marine mammals.
1: And also with us, our legendary stalwarts of kitchen science experimentation, Ginny Smith and Georgia Mills. Hello to both of you. What have you got for us, Ginny?
5: So we've got some fun experiments to do today. We're going to build some sandcastles and maybe even have a little competition to see who's best at building sandcastles, so prepare yourselves for that. And we're also going to look at how fish manage to float.
1: Sounds exciting. Shall we get started? (laughs) Lloyd, tell us a bit about your work then. So you work in Antarctica. It's not very Antarctic in here today. In fact, it's approaching 9 million degrees because we've had to turn the aircon off. But tell us about your work.
2: I've got a group that works in the Antarctic and some of those people are there now at Rothera Station and currently it's over 30 degrees here and where they are now it's between about minus 15 and minus 20. So there's almost a 50 degree difference between where I do most of my work at the moment and the temperature that we have here. I'm really interested in how animals not only survive in low temperatures but actually thrive in those environments and why they're different and how different they are, and I have some examples of that. And when you
1: say you've got some examples of these animals, what have you got with you, then? Okay.
2: well, some of the animals and some of the adaptations that we have in the Antarctic are very unusual. So one of the best examples, I guess, is there's a group of animals that live around the coast of the UK, and you've all been on holiday to the seashore, you've all looked in rock pools, and there are animals in those rock pools called sea spiders. And one of the biggest sea spiders in the UK is that animal there. So I don't know.
1: That's your That's the on the end of my finger. finger, And there's a tiny speck that you've stuck on the end of your finger. It's
2: sitting on the end of my finger. It's about five millimeters across. And okay, its legs are curled up so that when it's up and walking around, it's maybe as much as a centimetre across. And if you've looked in rock pools around the country, you will all have seen this animal. So what does it actually look like? If we sort of put a magnifying glass on there, what do we see? They look like an eight legged spider. They look a little bit more chunky than most spiders. Their legs are a little bit thicker. Their bodies are a little bit more chunky than that. But they do look a lot like a spider. Are they really spiders? No, they're not spiders. They're a related group to spiders. So there's a big group of animals generally called... The scientific name for them is chelicerates. But in that group, you've got scorpions, terrestrial spiders and sea spiders. And they're called chelicerates because these organs hanging down under their bodies that are hooked that are called keele. And our sea spiders use those keelies to carry their eggs around while they're developing their eggs.
1: But they don't make webs in the sea? They don't
2: make webs in the sea, no. There are some terrestrial spiders that live in the sea. They live subtidally and they pull air down from the surface and make little bubbles on the seabed and live in those with their webs. But these are sea spiders. They don't do
1: that. But that's not, if I'm honest, and don't take this the wrong way, that's not very impressive as a specimen.
2: That's one of the biggest European sea spiders.
1: Well, that's what I mean. It's It's not very impressive.
2: Okay. Now, we have sea spiders in the Antarctic. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, this sea spider is about 20 centimeters from leg tip to leg tip, and it's not one of the biggest sea spiders from Antarctica. The biggest sea spiders in Antarctica grow up to 50 centimeters from leg tip to leg tip.
1: I mean, to be fair, that's the size of a dinner plate. That's well, big, that. My
2: dinner plates are bigger than this, but it is the fair okay. size. <laughs> yeah. yeah, big, big eater. Yeah, um... okay. It, it's a big animal. Yeah. It certainly. Is. The biggest sea spiders in Antarctica are. 3,000 times heavier than the biggest sea spiders in Europe, around the UK, in North America, in all the temperate latitudes. And what does that eat? This species eats limpets. They chase limpets around the seabed, they catch limpets and they eat limpets. They have a a proboscis that they push under the side of the shell and they eat the limpet from underneath. But sea spiders eat lots of different things depending on the species. And the reason they get big is because it's cold. And the cold allows them to get a lot bigger for two reasons. One is that you need to spend energy to keep your body alive. The bigger your body, the more energy it costs. But when it's cold and you're a cold-blooded animal, your metabolic rate is very low because the low temperature pushes your metabolic rate down. So the cost for each piece of tissue is a lot less. The metabolic rates of these animals are 30 times lower than similar animals in the tropics.
1: Does it also help them, Lloyd, the fact that because it's really cold there's so much oxygen in the water because when the temperature of water is lower you can dissolve more gas in That's it right. than when it's hot, can't you? There's
2: roughly twice as much oxygen in a litre of seawater in the Antarctic as the tropics. So there's more oxygen available to fuel your metabolism. The metabolic rate is lower, the costs are lower. The two trade off together to make much bigger animals in some groups. We have a group of animals that are related to woodlice isopods that grow up to about 14 or 15 centimetres long. It's another group where we see giant size. So gigantism is one thing that happens at low temperature. It also means, because their metabolic rates are low, that if things go bad, they can just sit and wait. And we've done experiments with some predatory snails offering them all the food types they like, and some of them have eaten nothing for three years. And they're (laughs) still walking around the tank, they're still reproducing, they're still interacting with each other. The average number of meals was one meal every 11 months. So if things go bad, you can just wait for them to get better.
1: I mean, that's nearly as bad as a Cambridge University student.
2: (laughs) It is nearly as a... Well, the alcohol's not available for our animals in the (laughs) aquarium, but the food is limited, yeah.
1: And so are there any other animals that are also huge like that, or are these the exception? Is this sort of the rule down in Antarctica?
2: Sea spiders are one of the best examples that we have. And there are no lobsters and that type of animal in the Antarctic to be predators, so sea spiders have radiated out and... There are lots more sea spider species in the Antarctic than elsewhere, and we have 10-legged groups and 12-legged groups that you don't have anywhere else. But there are other groups. We have tinafores, sea gooseberries, that look like gooseberries in most oceans of the world. They get up to about 80 centimetres long in the Antarctic and are much, much bigger than a rugby ball. So there are lots of groups that do get bigger, but not everything does get bigger. There's got to be an ecological reason why large size is an advantage before they
1: do get to that large size. But there have been some reports off the coast of Cornwall, recently, of these barrel jellyfish that are a metre across. So you don't just have to live in really cold water to get big, though, do you? The
2: biggest jellyfish in the Antarctic are even bigger than that. I've seen one 140 feet long um, (laughs) and two metres across in the bell. But the size is relative to the architecture of the animal, but also then temperature has an effect on how big that architecture can be taken. Do they sting? Yes, they do, yeah. Painful? Well, when I'm diving in the Antarctic, it's cold and I wear a full dry suit. So it doesn't matter how, how much it things, it doesn't get through the dry suit. And I've never handled one with gloves off, so maybe. I don't know.
1: I think you should try, Lloyd. Yeah. Any questions for Lloyd so far? Hi, I'm Bob from Godmanchester. Thinking about
4: temperature and keeping warm enough, how does being in the sea compare to being up on land in the Antarctic? Because up on land you've got the wind but under the water, you've got the water around you rather than the air, which is better at sucking the heat
0: out of you.
2: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There are very different adaptations on land and in the sea. If you're a warm-blooded animal, then... Heat loss is a big problem at low temperatures. And most animals, most of the warm blooded animals, the seals, for instance, use fat as as an insulator. And the fattest animals on the planet are in the Antarctic. The elephant seals are maybe 45% fat, and the biggest elephant seals are three tonnes. So that's three times the biggest shire horse you've ever seen. And they keep warm by having lots of fat. If you're cold-blooded, then you're the same temperature as the environment. And in the sea and on the land, that's a very different problem because the land gets down to certainly minus 20, minus 30, and you have to be able to survive those low temperatures that you don't have in the sea. You also have dehydration as a problem. We're talking of really cold stuff. You've got an experiment. Yeah, so animals on the land, really good question, have lots of ways of surviving really cold temperatures. One is to use antifreeze, but we have an example of another mechanism here. And what I want is somebody from the audience to come out and stand close to where we are now. Can we have a volunteer?
5: Yeah, come on. Yeah, got someone over here. Okay. What's your name? Jessica. Jessica, Okay, brilliant. If you come and stand with me here. So I can see a big machine there that's making quite a lot of noise. What have you got going on here?
2: Well, what we've got is we've got a chiller, a cooling unit, and in that cooling unit, I've got some beakers with a liquid in. Here's a colourless liquid, and what I want you to do is tell me what that temperature says... On our thermometer that's in one of our beakers, there's a minus Uh
0: twenty-seven. Oh
2: no. (laughs) Two point seven. There's a dot. dot. (laughs) So the temperature in this beaker is minus two point seven.
5: So what does that look like? What can you see in there? It looks like water. Is it water?
2: So what happens to water when you take it down to minus two point seven?
5: It turns into ice.
2: Is this ice?
5: No. He's just drunk it.
2: I'm just drinking it. Do you want some ginny?
5: Go on then. I'm not sure I believe that it's water, because if it's minus 2.7, that's definitely still a liquid. That shouldn't be happening.
2: It should be ice, shouldn't it? But it's not. You try some and drink some and tell me what you think.
5: Okay, it's definitely water. It's not vodka. I thought you might be tricking me.
2: No, Okay. And it's minus 2.7. So if I drop a piece of ice inside, you can start to see that ice grows in the water around the piece of ice. Can you see that?
5: So what, what can you see around the ice? Spikes. It looks like little spikes are coming out from the ice, and the piece is getting bigger, isn't it? hmm You dropped in a tiny, weeny piece of ice, and now the ice is almost kind of half-filling the beaker. Yes. Yeah. What's so you, happening? You
2: can see ice growing before your very eyes in the water. Shall we do that again? Here's another one. Minus 2.7. Do you want to tell people how fast the ice grows when I drop this little piece of ice inside? Here we go.
6: Very fast.
2: <laughs> okay. So the question is, what's going on? And the answer is, this is called supercooling. And if you take water out of your taps and put it into your freezer, it freezes at zero degrees. The reason it freezes at zero degrees is there are lots of impurities in the water that ice crystals start to grow on. If you take all of those impurities out, then there's nothing for the ice to grow on. And the ice won't grow as quickly. And you can get the purest water we can get. You can get down to about minus 40 before it freezes. This is water from my lab that is, technically, it's called 18 mega per centimetre water. You measure purity of water by its resistance to electricity as it gets pure and pure. and this is really pure water. I can get this down to about minus six before it freezes. So this is supercooling, and some animals use supercooling to avoid freezing in the Antarctic in the winter. They get rid of all the ice nucleators, all the particles that ice can grow on. They throw them out of their body and that drops their freezing point by maybe as much as 5 or 6 degrees. And you add antifreeze to it, and they can then go down below minus 20, maybe down to minus 30 before their bodies freeze. Thank you very much for coming on.
5: So what kind of animals use this?
2: The best-known animals are very small insects, microarthropods things the size of thrips that we've all been seeing around the country recently, things called springtails and mites. And they're the real Antarctic terrestrial animals. The biggest Antarctic terrestrial animal that lives there year-round is about two millimetres long, and it's a a mite or a springtail, and they use supercooling and antifreeze to survive down to about minus 35 degrees, and they can survive in crevices during the Antarctic winter, protected a little bit by snow from the, the minus 50s and 60s above.
0: I'm Kelvin from San Francisco. Gosh, you've come a long way. I have, and since my name is Kelvin, I think it's very appropriate that I ask this question. Is there any way for us to do this at home? So, for example, by distilling water.
2: If you can get your hands on any really pure water, yes, you can. Your problem is going to be getting it low enough so that it's below freezing and getting it at exactly the right point. The equipment I brought in here will run at minus three degrees all day, which means I can set it up and run it if you put it in your freezer it's going to go because your freezer is going to be at minus 18 your timing's going to have to be good but you i've done this at home in the freezer and i've bought ultra pure water from the chemist and it works
5: i've seen it done if you get a lot of ice and then add some salt to it and then stick your bottles of water in that that can be a good way to get
1: them cold enough as well
2: if you add salt to ice it takes the temperature down a little bit further and then you can run something for a, a longer period of time
1: excellent any more questions uh, my name's Kate Barker. I'm also
6: from Gulf Manchester. You were talking about antifreeze. Is that antifreeze as we would know it that we put in our cars?
2: It's not the same as you would put in your cars, but there are lots and lots of chemicals that are used by animals as antifreezes. There's a whole range that are used by fish in the ocean that are proteins and glycoproteins. Insects have a barrage of antifreezes. Glycerol they can use and they have a, a whole range that will allow them to survive very, very low temperatures. They don't use glycol. Ethylene glycol isn't one that they commonly use, but they've got somewhere between 50 and 80 different antifreeze molecules, and there's, there are a couple of moths that can turn their bodies into 60 or 70 percent glycerol for the wintertime to survive in a kind of semi-hibernation state over a long period of time. And then when the temperatures come back up, they can resynthesize it back into the, the functioning pr- molecules that they need. Georgia, you've got something.
6: Mark Chavret on Twitter wants to know, are there any antibiotics or other natural products which come from the sea?
2: There are lots and lots of natural products that come from the sea. So there are alginates that are used in ice creams, and there are many products, but I don't know about antibiotics. I suspect there are, because I suspect that... Some of the animals that we have in the sea and some of the bacteria that we have in the sea all interact, and lots of them have chemical defences, and some of those chemical defences will have antibiotic properties.
6: So what are these products which go into ice cream?
2: Well, alginates, for instance, are used... see which way George's mind works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are several low-temperature products that are used to keep things slightly plastic in their makeup, and they're used to help control the size of crystals... Um, when ice grows, and so if you can control the crystal size very carefully, you can make a smoother ice cream. And so those products are used for those sorts of things with ice creams.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Lloyd Peck from the British Antarctic Survey. <laughs> You're listening to The Naked Scientists. My name's Chris Smith, and we're live on a pre-recorded show at the Cambridge Science Centre, and we're talking marine biology and marine conservation this week with four esteemed experts. Our next expert is Viola Ross-Smith, and you are an ornithologist. You're interested in birds.
3: Yes, I am. I work for the British Trust for Ornithology, and I work on seabirds. So I've brought some props with me. I haven't got a sea spider, but I have got a box of seabirds behind me, if anyone wants to look at them. You've but got a what? A box of seabirds. Alive? They're dead. Yeah. They've been, <laughs> You're they've not been doing your job for, very well, um, then if they're dead. They've been for about 90 <laughs> years. But if people are interested, I can get them out. Do you want to see? OK. OK, so these are skins. So they look a bit odd. Start with a chick. Aww. This is a little fluffy lesser blackback gold gull chick. It was probably about a day old when it died 90 years ago. But this is a species I normally work on, actually, lesser blackback golds, gulls, and I put these tags on, which I'll tell you about later. Just to show you the kind of range we get in the UK. This is a little tern. So these breed on the coast of Suffolk and Norfolk, not too far away. This species has got quite a long, it's in breeding plumage, it's got a long yellow beak, a black hood, and then um, typical for seabirds, it's got a pale grey back and a white plumage underneath. Working up the turns, this is a common turn, so it's about twice the size of a little turn.
1: Have you got a U-turn in there?
3: I don't have a U-turn, but I have got a sandwich turn, which <laughs> is <laughs> the biggest turn you normally get in the UK. This breeds mostly in North Wales, Anglesey, in the UK, and it would have a black hood, but this specimen is going out of summer plumage into winter plumage, so um, the hood's sort of receded back. It's just patchy
5: black. Are you saying that they change colour with the seasons?
3: Yeah, they do. So most seabirds in the winter, like puffins, for example... Of which I have one here. Um,
1: <laughs>
3: There's um, one I made
1: earlier. <laughs> yeah. Well, some
3: made several years ago. In the winter, they don't have these characteristic clown-like colours around the beaks. In fact, some of the, the bits on their beak just fall off, and when they're out at sea in the winter, they just look sort of dark and just not, not very interesting. And then when they come into breeding plumage, they develop all exotic colours around their bill, and in turns and gulls, if they have a hood, they grow it in the summer normally. So yeah, carrying on with my little exploration of British seabirds, I've got a few orcs. This is a little orc. They're kind of, compared to the terns, the terns are long and thin and streamlined. These ones are more sort of bottle-shaped almost, they look more like bullets or something. That's because they're pursuit divers, so they're not very good at flying, but they'll dive straight into the sea and then they swim quite strongly and they um, chase
5: after sand eels and other small fish looks a bit like a tiny penguin when you see yeah. penguins underwater and they look quite streamlined and elegant.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting example of convergent evolution. So the orcs are northern hemisphere penguins, really, in many ways. Unlike the penguins, the ones that are still um, extant do fly. There was the great orc that is now extinct, which didn't fly, oh. which was much bigger than these guys. But yeah, they, in many ways, they are northern hemisphere penguins. So yeah, we've got little orc, we've got a puffin, which is also an orc. I don't know if I need to describe puffins. I think everybody on the radio knows what they look like, although I think people are often surprised by how small they are.
5: Yeah, I was, I was quite surprised, but the beak is very distinctive, that big, kind of triangular, colourful beak.
3: Yeah, and this is a, yeah, quite a, a poor specimen in terms of the colours, so when you see them on a breeding colony, I would recommend going and seeing puffins in breeding colonies if you never have. They're really quite spectacular.
5: Is there more in there? It's like a Mary Poppins book. I've only got a couple more
3: if people can bear it. So I've got two more orcs here: Guillemot and Razorbill. They're quite similar large orcs, but the Razorbill has got a much curved, thicker beak than the Guillemot. The Guillemot's got a narrow, black, pointy beak. The Razorbill's got this black beak with characteristic white stripes on it. And is that because they eat different things? Yeah, it's quite interesting actually. They've got very similar niches, but they dive to slightly different depths and. Um, they coexist, they nest on the same ledges and seabird colonies, but they have to differentiate slightly, otherwise they wouldn't manage. And then finally, I thought I'd go for the bigger <laughs> seabirds in the U.K. So this is a first winter great blackback gull. It doesn't normally look like a spear. <laughs> um, it's because it's a skin and it's not stuffed very well. But this is our largest seagull, well, in the world, actually not just in the U.K. If I could unfurl its wings, it would have a two-meter wingspan.
1: Do they live all around the U.K?
3: Yes, they do. Um, in the winter, they tend to migrate off more out to sea, but they stay around the UK all year round. Unlike some of the other gulls I work on, someone once described them as the lions of the sea to me, and I think that's quite apt.
1: So, if your sort of work is going well, then you should be able to have all of these in fine fettle all around the British coastline. I mean, you're, you're looking at how to conserve these birds and how they how they live.
3: Yeah, we are indeed. So, a lot of the work I do is applied ecology for the BTO. We're funded often by the government to do impartial research. We we don't campaign, unlike the RSPB. And the government wants to know things like what might offshore wind turbines do to the seabirds? Will they be able to fly around them? Will they fly through them and get chopped up? Will it take away fish that they rely on, or will it attract fish and actually help seabirds? So one of the ways we do this, and we've done it on the bird I'm holding right now, actually, the Great Skewer, is we put these GPS tags on them. So I've got a couple of tags here. They're not cheap. They cost a £1,000 each. They're very high-tech, solar-powered tags, which means that they're long-lived. The one I'm holding now is about 5 centimetres by 2 centimetres. It weighs approximately 19 grams, which is nothing for a massive seabird like a great black bat gull or a great skewer i couldn't put it on the little orc or the little turn they measure position 3d position and they give information like acceleration we can take fixes up to every three seconds on them and that means that you can pretty much see what the birds are doing whether they're you know flapping soaring diving gliding you can calculate through the acceleration whether they're traveling on thermals whether they're doing dynamic soaring if it's something like an albatross and we've had some of these tags on lesser black goals in Suffolk for four years now. So we've got really good information about what they're doing all year round. They look
1: like they've got a little antenna sticking up off the back. Is that how it gets the data?
3: Yeah, well, it was how it got the data, but actually that model that's been passed around is about four years old. And since then, they've put the antennas inside. And that's because, well, it's less invasive for the bird. It doesn't interfere with their aerodynamics and also a bird like a great skewer or a great blackback gull just try and tear the antenna off.
1: Because it looks like a little bird backpack. Yeah, yeah it how, is. How do, you, how do like you put a... them on? Do you, do you strap them on or something? Yeah,
3: we've got um, harnesses made of Teflon, which strap under the wings and it loops through the little eye holes on the tag. And, yeah, it just holds it nicely in place for years and years and years. The birds don't seem bothered. They behave normally. They carry on breeding. They migrate, in the case of our lessers. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And we can see them weaving in and out of the wind turbines, we can see some birds travelling down to Morocco every winter. Do you, do you ever
1: see them accidentally not weave around the wind turbines? Um,
3: not if yet. If we did, I don't think um, DEC, <laughs> the Department of Energy and Climate Change, who funds the work, I don't think they'd be very pleased. But some more seriously,
1: are. what influence of the wind turbines are you seeing?
3: I shouldn't preempt this too much, but very little, actually, on our lesser black goals They seem to be coping with them absolutely fine. That's not to say that other seabirds or other non-sea birds can cope with them I know people think that birds like gannets they're always looking down all the time they don't tend to look ahead so they could possibly be affected much worse than gulls are but we can't use these tags on gannets and that's because they're diving birds and they hit the water at 60 miles an hour if they've got a harness and a tag on them it could affect their behavior and probably break the tag so um, we don't know. Scientists
1: in St Andrews have shown this week that seals change their behaviour because when you put these wind turbines in, they build a sort of artificial reef to put them on. That's right, yeah. And the seals, they can see by following the seals where all the wind turbines are that's because right. they spend all their time around them. And they're saying, actually, this could attract fish and other species around these artificial reefs. Yeah. And it may be that the, the seals make a beeline there, if that's the right sort of phrase a to use. Line, yeah. But, but in fact, that means that you could decimate fish populations because all the fish go there and then they're easy pickings. Yeah, do, it's Do you really not think the birds might be... Well, I know people
3: speculate that cormorants might be using um, wind turbines exactly the same way, but it probably isn't the case for other birds. I know um, eider duck, for example, you can see that they start avoiding wind farms two kilometres away. They start making massive avoidance movements, which means they're not using an area of the sea that they previously did use and that could be having negative impacts on that population. We don't know yet. It's, you know, it's quite a, a complicated area, really. And these are just for our big birds with you know, smaller birds, you know, little storm petrels or even non-sea birds migrating passerines just flying over. We don't know. They'll probably just get chopped up, but it's hard to test that yet. These tags are too big to put on them.
1: Who's got some questions?
3: My name is Jeremy. I come from Little Fetford. You're
1: not from God, Manchester. That's a good start. <laughs>
3: I come from Big Petford. But, but yeah, carry on. How do you catch the birds? The way we catch them, well, at least when we're tagging them, it's a good question, is in the breeding season, seabirds are tied to their nests, so they have to incubate their eggs and they have to look after their chicks. The rest of the year they're out to sea and we probably couldn't catch them. But that means when they're on the nest, we can put a trap around the nest it's just a mesh trap, and the bird just walks in and sits on its eggs, acts like nothing's happened, and then I come running out of the bushes and grab it <laughs> and put it in the sack and then go and put the tag on it and then let it go about ten minutes later, and it goes back to the nest and it's all fine. The colony gets wise to it after a while. You can easily trap ten birds or whatever in the first few hours, and then after that they see me coming and they fly up straight away. But if I wear different clothes, they don't know it's me anymore, so have to keep with them. You disguise
1: them. yourself because these guys in America were looking at mockingbirds and they found that these mockingbirds could tell one person yeah. who went and annoyed them. If, if one of the researchers went and, and made annoying noises next to their nest on a daily basis, they very quickly wised up to the fact that this guy was a nuisance. Whereas the other guy from the lab who looked a bit different, they, they wouldn't object to him being near their nest, but yeah. the other chap, they would start attacking. So they're obviously quite good at they, recognising individuals. So yeah. you've made one or two enemies out there.
3: Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's not always a good thing to make an enemy of a girl. You know, they come, they pool all over me. It's <laughs> really not very nice, but probably deserve it. But all in the name of science.
6: Hi, I'm Claire, and I work at the Cambridge Science Centre. My question was about great orcs. When did they go extinct, and what were the pressures on that species? They
3: were hunted to extinction. I think it's quite sad, really. I think it, the last few orcs were basically you know, people knew they were going extinct. And it was almost just like a Victorian trophy thing. I can't remember the exact year the last Great Hawk went extinct, but it was 18 something in the Victorian times. So it wasn't that long ago. And yeah, people were just going out and shooting. A lot of seabird populations went down massively at that time, including gulls and gannets. And it wasn't just hunting, people were taking their feathers for hat making and people were egg collecting. It was a different attitude altogether.
5: So, do you like going to the beach, despite the fact that the gulls attack you?
3: Yeah, I love it, actually. It gives me a whole
5: extra dimension on the experience. And what about building sandcastles? Are you a fan of sandcastles? Oh, yeah. Everyone loves sandcastles, right? Exactly. So, we thought we would see if there was some science behind building sandcastles, and see if we could make the best possible sandcastle here at the Cambridge Science Centre for you. Does that sound good?
6: Yes. Okay. So, we've got a desk completely covered in sand here. What's this setup? What are we going to be doing? So, we're
5: going to be looking at how much water you want in your sandcastle. So, first of all, ooh, in this rather heavy box here, I have some lovely dry sand. So, you can see that sort of flowing down from my fingers when I pick it up. It's bone dry. What do you think that's going to do if we make a sandcastle out of it?
6: I imagine that will tumble down, much like a sand dune. Should we give it a go? Definitely.
5: Okay, so I have a little kind of cup-shaped thing here. It actually used to have bay leaves in it. And we're going to use that as our mould today for making a sandcastle. So I'm going to pack it full of this really dry sand, pat it down, and then I'm going to turn it out, and we're going to see what happens. Here we go. Whoa, that's
1: really good.
5: (laughs) (laughs) What happened? It didn't
6: stay off at all. As soon as it went out of the container, it just tumbled onto the floor.
5: Yeah. So I definitely wouldn't call that a sandcastle, would you? No. So now we're going to try a really,
6: really wet one and see what happens there. Okay, so we're pouring in a mug of water into a very small amount of sand. So it's looking a bit more like gloopy mud at the moment rather than sand. Just mixing it together. Right, so I'm going to try and slop some of this stuff into my tube
5: it's It's feeling pretty wet, but we said we wanted water to make a sand castle, didn't we? We said we needed it nice and wet, so what do you guys think's
6: going to happen?: I think it's gonna um, be too wet and then it' all fall out.' Just packing the end of the sand in. Three,
5: Three. two, one <laughs>
6: oh, It seems stuck.
5: <laughs> it came out earlier.
6: Eventually.
1: I think we can conclude that that's, that's not a good recipe either, that's Ginny. Nice
6: <laughs> OK, here we go. Oh. Well, it's, it's come out in bits. It's not quite what you'd want at the seaside.
5: But it is at least sort of standing up. It's, it's sort of a sandcastle, isn't it, guys? Yeah. Yeah. So now to see how good a sandcastle is, it is. We're going to see how much weight it can take. So, we're going to pile some pound coins on top and see how many we can get on it. One, two, let's go in twos now. Four, six, eight. Oh, it's not doing badly, is it? Ten,
6: twelve, fourteen. Oh, I saw a bit of movement. I need some on more one. pound coins. Sixteen, eighteen.
5: This is much better than I was expecting. 20, 22, 24, 26. I think some of the water drained out of it while we were trying to get it out. You're
1: going to have to move to a country where the exchange rate's a bit better, Ginny.
5: <laughs> wow! and my, my, I think my pound coin tower might fall over before my sandcastle does. So we've shown that for strength, at least, you want your sandcastle to be as wet as possible. Well, I think our sandcastle deserves a round of applause.
1: So, Ginny, why why does adding the water make it stronger and stick together better?
5: Water is really interesting because it has something called surface tension. So have you any of you ever filled a glass so full that it looked like it was going to spill over the top, but then you've realised that actually the water's sort of sticking up over the top of the glass in a kind of curve? Have you seen that? Yeah. Got lots of nodding. So that's because of something called surface tension. Water molecules like each other, and they like to stick together and hang together. So when I've got my dry sand, there's nothing to make it stick together. But as soon as I add some water... The water wants to hug itself, it wants to grab the sand molecules and it's going to keep them together. It forms kind of little bridges between the sand. And what you want is you want enough water that it's going to fill up all the gaps between sand. So if, if you only add a little bit of water, it's not going to fill all of those gaps. You want enough to fill all those gaps, but not so much that the water itself starts to flow and become a liquid and you've just got water with some sand in it. So getting that proportion just right is what makes a really good sandcastle. But I also learned that actually if you want to make the really intricate sandcastles that you see people making in competitions, what they do is rather than using a bucket and turning it out like we did, they build a mound and they compact it down and they keep pushing it down to make those gaps between the sand molecules, as tiny as possible, and then they let the water sort of drain out so that it's not too wet, and then they carve it. So actually, when you see those really intricate ones, they haven't been built up the way most of us build up sandcastles bit by bit. They've made a huge mound, and then they've carved it out. So that's what to do if you want, if you want a really fancy one.
1: Thank you very much, Ginny and Georgia. We're listening to a special pre-recorded edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and Ginny Smith, and also Georgia Mills, and an esteemed panel of marine experts this week. And our next guest is Mark Spaulding. Tell us about yourself, Mark. Where do you work normally?
0: So I work for an organisation called The Nature Conservancy. It's a pretty big organisation, though not, not well known in the UK, and our mission is to look after the lands and waters on which all life depends. That's what we're, we're setting out to do, and we're an organisation that works around the world 35 countries in the sea and on land my work is focused very much on marine habitats and I guess my passion for the sea started probably a pretty early age actually I was I think 11 when I first dived on a coral reef
1: and I don't think I ever really looked back. But why are coral reefs important why do we regard them as really important for conservation?
0: So many ways so coral reefs are these wonderful the rainforests of the sea we talk about they're mega diverse habitats that are built mainly in the tropics, where they kind of circle the land, and they're highly productive, so they're wonderfully important for many people who rely on them for fish. They also actually produce many other benefits, so they protect our coasts, from uh, many coasts from the impact of waves. In many tropical countries, of course, you've got hurricanes and things that threaten coasts, so that's tremendously important. Someone asked a question earlier about some of the chemicals and cosmetics and products that we might get from the sea well the, the coral reefs have been seen as because of their immense diversity as potentially really important sites for providing new pharmaceuticals and new compounds that we might use in all sorts of ways already products from coral reef animals are being used in um, some drugs for cancer and in sunscreens as well actually strangely enough and there's much more to be found in the world tell us coral about
1: the sunscreens i'm intrigued you rub bits of coral on do you uh,
0: No, it'd be pretty painful i think no but corals Corals are actually dependent on light, which is why we get them in bright, sunlit waters. And because they're dependent on light, they're also subjected to quite a lot of UV light, which, just as it can with us, can cause problems for the corals. So they've developed some mechanisms to defend themselves from UV light, which we've then been able to But utilize. how do they rub it on? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of these things, we look to nature for the inspiration, and then you know, the scientists then work with the compounds that we're finding in nature to build the properties that we might, might want. Why are coral reefs regarded as threatened? Well, if you look at the reefs of the world, they're spread out in a sort of belt around the tropics. And they, they've adapted to live in, a, in an environment which is pretty stable year-round, fairly stable temperatures. And they have adapted to that extremely well. And what's happening now is that we're starting to see already slight increases in the world's, in the world's temperatures and the seawater temperatures as well. And it turns out that corals are extremely vulnerable, even to the smallest changes in temperature. So an increase above the normal maximum of a degree or two for a few weeks will cause a stress response in corals. Do we know why they're so sensitive? Only that they seem to have adapted. No, we don't, I, we don't know enough, to be quite honest. But uh, they seem to have adapted to this sort of lovely year-round Jamaica kind of temperature and, and, and can't cope with a bit more. They have a very complex relationship inside their body tissues with an algae, which uses sunlight to generate energy, which the corals use. They're almost photosynthetic as organisms. When they get too hot, the algae become expelled. The corals go white. We call it bleaching. And at that point, they're starving. They're still alive, but they're not getting any food anymore. And if it continues for even just a few weeks, the corals will perish. At that point, the reef looks pretty dead. They can come back, of course, once the temperatures cool down, but those corals are
1: dead. What is the scale of the problem? if you look around the world at, at the reefs we've been monitoring?
0: People first noticed coral bleaching probably 20 years ago, but there, there was no extreme events. And then in 1998, we had an El Nino year, which is a Pacific Ocean climatic phenomenon and an oceanographic phenomenon, but it essentially drove warm waters around the world. And it was the most extreme El Nino we'd had. I happened to be doing an expedition at the time in the Seychelles, uh, looking at the coral reefs across the Seychelles, Hoping to have this wonderful time diving on the world's most pristine coral reefs. It's sort of a
1: holiday. It sounded.
0: It? It? <laughs> <laughs> it was a good report at the end of it. That's the difference. It was wonderful. We were on a yacht sailing down the Seychelles, <laughs> but as we got there, we saw that the corals were all bleaching, and it was actually really depressing to do a two thousand kilometre transect through the Seychelles islands and watch the coral reefs of the Seychelles die. And as we came back, we heard the news from the entire Western Indian Ocean that it was the Maldives, the Seychelles, the Chagos Islands, and so on.
1: Huge areas of coral reefs had all... 90% of the corals died that year. Now, they've come... It's a new thing. Um, Do we think this is a a, a worsening trend, or do we just think there have been blips like this in the past and that this is just another one and it will get better?
0: No-one had seen anything on the scale of what happened in 1998, and it is increasing more frequently and more extensive... There hasn't been anything to parallel 98, but unfortunately the omens are pretty poor for next year. It looks like there's another big El Nino brewing, so it looks like we'll see another of these events. The real concern from the scientists is that corals are not going to have enough time for the evolutionary adaptation that they might need, and as temperatures warm up, these events might become more frequent, and so they won't be able to recover in between these events. So it's a very worrying time for coral reefs. Can we do anything about it? We're not sure. There seems to be some evidence that corals themselves are doing something about it, that the corals that come back are a little bit more robust. My organisation is doing some pretty interesting stuff in the Caribbean coral reefs, where we're trying to grow, and we've got nurseries, just like you might see plant nurseries, with tens of thousands of corals being grown up underwater. And we are selecting them for their resistance to bleaching, and we're starting to plant them out on the coral reefs of the Caribbean. So we're trying, but really we're pretty worried about the
1: state of coral reefs worldwide. the benefit is they don't wake you up at night, do they? Your corals in your nursery. (laughs) Any questions so far for for Mark?
2: I'm Emily, and I was wondering how poisonous coral stings are.
0: Emily, great question. Well, corals, if you look up close at a coral, it's made up of lots of little small organisms living in a colony. And those small organisms, just like sea anemones, they're, they're exactly the same group of animals as sea anemones, and they have, all of them, the capacity to sting. They have a little special adaptation, a nematocyst, which enables them to sting. Now, most corals couldn't sting a person, or you wouldn't feel it. There's a few corals that do sting, and it's a little bit like a nettle sting, not that bad. But a few people are allergic to it, and some people have found that the more they get stung, the the worse their reaction is, but generally not that
1: bad. Anything else? Georgia, what have you got?
6: I have a question about that. In Finding Nemo, the clownfish swims around... Own
1: documentary.
6: (laughs) The clownfish swims around the coral and it gives him more of an immunity to stings, but it's the other way around for humans.
0: The observation is exactly right. It's an anemone, of course, that the clownfish lives in, but, as I said, they're related to corals. And, yes, they do seem to develop an immunity to the stings which other fish don't have. And I believe it's something that builds in on the mucus on the, on the surface of the, of the skin of the clownfish. So when the, if you take a clownfish out of an anemone for long enough, it will lose its immunity. And if it goes into the anemone, it will be stung and it will be eaten. So when a clownfish meets an anemone, it spends a bit of time adapting and, and just touching the edge of the anemone until it develops its immunity.
1: Thank is that you. like sort of graded drinking, where you get a few minor hangovers, but you build <laughs> up a tolerance? A little bit like that, building up a tolerance. Any other questions?
6: We also have a question from Twitter. Orangello wants to know where coral reefs can go. What stops them from growing everywhere?
0: That's a really good question, too. Climate change is already on us, and I think we need to get that clear. So as temperatures are warming up, a lot of species are already changing their distribution. We see that in UK waters. I'm sure you've seen it with the birds. So we're already seeing that, and corals are moving, too. But as you move out from the tropics, you get a slightly different sort of a climate, because you get much more seasonality outside of the tropics. So I said to you at the beginning, corals are adapted to this lovely sort of Walter Jamaican type temperature year round. As you move out of the tropics, you get cold winters. And that's quite tough. Corals don't like the cold either, so they've kind of adapted to this. So it's not a given that corals can migrate further north or south out of the tropics. But that
2: we are seeing some movements in those directions. Lloyd. It's really interesting, but if you look at animals that live in stable temperature environments, so the two places in the sea where the temperatures are very stable are in the tropics and the poles. Animals living there have very small abilities to survive when the temperatures warm up. So there's been a fair bit of experimentation looking at those temperatures they can survive with, and they're literally maybe a couple of degrees over their, their normal temperatures, they start to die. But if you look in between where the temperatures are variable, In the sea, in the the temperate latitudes, the cool temperate latitudes, the warm temperate latitudes, they have maybe a 6 to 10 degree buffer over the top of what they normally see that they can survive. And it looks like it's this exposure to variability of temperature in the environment that gives animals the capacity to survive a warming environment that isn't there when they live in very stable conditions like the tropics or in the poles.
0: So you're seeing that? In the Antarctic as well, are you? Uh, absolutely. And
2: there's been two or three pieces of work published on the same groups of animals from the poles to the tropics and the polar and tropical animals both have the same limit in terms of their ability to cope with the warming and the ones in between have a much, much higher ability to cope with a the warming them.
1: Mark Spalding, thank you very much. <laughs> Let's get experimental now. Ginny, what have you got for us?
5: So as well as changing temperatures, another thing that animals that live in the sea have to deal with is the pressure. Because on Earth, we're all dealing with the pressure of the atmosphere pressing down on us all the time. But under the sea, they've got the weight of all that water and that causes much, much higher pressures. So we're going to do a little experiment here all about how animals might survive in different pressures and what they'll do. So it's a very simple setup. You probably have a go at this at home. I've got a fizzy drinks bottle, one of the big ones. And inside I've got a plastic pipette with a blob of blue tack on the bottom. And that's just to make it float at the right kind of position. The pipette is a kind of plastic tube filled with air and it's a little bit bendy. You use them to pick up liquids and transfer them to one place to another by kind of squeezing them, putting them in the liquid and letting go and they can suck that liquid up. So our pipette in there has a little air bubble in it and that means it's floating at the top of the bottle. So Georgia, what I want you to do is take the bottle and hold it round the middle and then squeeze it for me and tell me what you see happening. And it's just sunk to the bottom. So the pipette has gone from being at the top of the bottle to the bottom. And then when you released it, it went back up again, didn't it? So where did the air go when I squeezed it? So actually, if you watch it, you can see the air bubble gets smaller when you squeeze it and then bigger again when you let go. And that's because you can compress air. And you can't compress water. So our bottle is completely full of water. So when you squeeze the bottle, that water's all going to push on the pipette. And what that's going to do is squeeze the pipette and make the air bubble inside smaller. Now, the reason something floats in water is it's less dense. So density is all about your size compared to your mass. So your, your volume compared to your mass. So if you've got something very big but very light, it's going to float like a beach ball. If you've got something small and heavy like a rock, it's going to sink. This pipette, we've made sure that it has almost the same density as the water, so it's just slightly less dense, so it floats at the top. But then when you squeeze it and all that water's pushing inwards, making that air bubble smaller, you're actually increasing its density because its mass is staying the same, but you're making it smaller, so its volume smaller. And that means it suddenly becomes more dense than the water, and then it sinks. So is this because air can get compressed, but water can't? Exactly. So the pressure you're putting into it has to go somewhere, and it's all going into squeezing that bubble and making it smaller, so that the pipette can sink. So this is a very neat experiment, but what is the pipette representing? What does this mean in real life? So we've been talking about animals that live in the sea and this is really relevant because fish, some fish, have something called a swim bladder and that's basically just like this bubble of air but inside a fish and that means that they don't have to keep swimming all the time in order to stay afloat. If we just sort of chilled out in the water, we can sort of float a bit, but that's because we've got air in our lungs. But animals like sharks that don't have these swim bladders, they have to swim all the time or they have to rest on the bottom because they can't just stay floating. But if you put this bubble of air inside a fish, then it can float. And the amount of air it has in its swim bladder will determine where in the sea it floats. So if it wants to go a bit deeper, it compresses that air bubble, increases its density, and it can sink. And if it wants to come a bit higher, it releases that, gets a bit more gas inside it, and then it becomes less dense and it can come up to the surface.
6: So is this something we have to think about when we use submarines and dive deep into the ocean?
5: Exactly. So that's exactly how submarines work. They'll have these cavities that are filled with air, and when they want to dive down, they'll open something and fill those cavities up with water. That makes them heavier, makes them more dense and they can sink. And then when they want to come back to the surface, they can push that water out using some compressed gas they've got on board, make themselves lighter and less dense, and they'll come back up to the surface.
1: I had um, visions of someone in the submarine squeezing a bottle of fizzy pop. <laughs> Ginny and Georgia, thank you very much. <laughs> You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith, and we're at the Cambridge Science Centre, where we're recording this programme this week, looking at sciences in the ocean. And with us also is Bill Amos, who actually does genetics of big animals in the sea. So tell us about what you do. My career is rather serendipitous in that
4: I did my PhD on little animals on greenfly. And I did the genetics of greenfly, and it wasn't a very successful study. And I was wondering what to do next. And I went to an inspirational talk by a guy called Alec Jeffries, who was the guy who invented DNA fingerprinting, this way of identifying individuals and working out who's related to who using genetic techniques, using DNA techniques. And I thought, this was fantastic. And I came back to Cambridge, and I met this odd guy walking down the street with a bandana on his head. And I knew him as the weird guy in the department who disappeared for most of the year. And he was a sailor, and his whole research was on the behaviour of whales. And he asked me, he said, look, we've got some material, we've got this study that we'd like to do some genetics on whales, but we don't know what to do. And I said, Well, I've got the best technique you could think of. And basically I've never looked back. I started off uh, two projects, one on the Grey Seal up in Scotland, and one on pilot whales, which are hunted in a traditional fishery in the Faroe Islands. And in both cases I was using DNA fingerprinting to work out who's related to who. Oh not who done it? Not who done it. Well, slightly who done it, as in who's the father, on occasions. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, so we, we were trying to find out something about the ecology of these animals, because of course, if you go to sea and look out at the sea, you see an awful lot of water without any whales in. And in fact, if there are any chemists out there, I once worked out that the sea is has a concentration of whales of about ten to the minus thirty-eight molar. So it's a very, very dilute solution of whales.
1: So two questions then. One, how do you find the whales? And more importantly, how do you find out their genetic code? What do you have to do? Well, first of all, you need to get some samples.
4: And in the Faroe Islands, they were hunting the whales. And I really hated being involved in this project, but it was an unusual circumstance, and the whales were going to be dead anyway. But normally you don't have that, as it were, the luxury of access to those samples, so we were looking for other methods, and at the time there were people developing methods based on bows and arrows. You'd go onto the boat with a bow and arrow, and on the end of the arrow would be a tiny little, like an apple corer, which was capable of taking a little plug of skin with a rubber bung to stop it hurting the whale. So it would just go bump and take a little plug of skin, and you'd have it on a fishing line, then you'd haul it back in, and you would then be able to take the sample and... Use that sample for your genetic analysis. We decided to go down a less invasive route, slightly more difficult, but a bit more glamorous. So we realised that whales actually shed skin like we have dandruff, but of course they have spectacular dandruff on occasions. So if well, you know define, where the Define
1: spectacular.
4: I've seen pieces of whale skin about a metre square, like a little chiffon scarf. Sitting in the seawater. How would you recognise it? What does it look like then? They're just little fragments of dark material, and it depends what the whale's been doing. If you're lucky enough to see a whale breach, that's when they leap out of the water and come down with a huge splash, then the sea is... You can actually smell the skin on the surface of the water. And if you dive into the water with a little aquarium net, if you get there before the fish, because, of course, this is a bit of a source of food, you can scoop up bits... Now, then, the nice thing is that whales, you can identify them individually from the patterns of natural markings. They accumulate scars, and they have little, little scallops out of the back end of their tails. And so you take a photograph of the whale, you then follow it in the water, and as soon as it dives, the turbulence of the water around the tail when it dives means it sheds a bit of skin into the water, and you then dive off your boat, and you hope to find some fragments that you can then link to that individual.
1: And you can get the DNA out of those.
4: And those bits of skin are big enough to get nice DNA out of. And a student of mine working on humpback whales ended up with 650 individually identified animals. And then you can start asking interesting questions because really we don't understand much about humpback whale social organisation. There are a lot of documentaries, but most of the science in terms of what they're actually doing and why...
1: Is really remains to be found How out. do you actually use this? Because the whales are going to hang around in groups, aren't they? They're social animals. They like to be together. So how do you not know when you scoop up your whale skin with your net that you're not scooping up a bit of me, a bit of you, a bit of this guy here?
4: Fish are very good at hoovering and keeping the water pretty clean. So you usually follow an individual, and when it dives, you collect the skin from that. Now, where we were working, and I only got to go there once, but it was wonderful, two weeks of miraculous experience of swimming with humpback whales. It's all for the science. I've had quite a long career and I've spent four weeks actually swimming with whales. (laughs) In Hawaii, the whales are sensible. When they want to reproduce, they swim to the nice warm waters around shallow, generally equatorial islands like Hawaii, like the West Indies, places like that. And the females give birth, and then the female and her calf will stay together for a number of weeks suckling before they return up to the much richer waters up in the Arctic in the Northern Hemisphere and the Antarctic in the Southern Hemisphere, where they really feed up during the summer on huge shoals of either crustaceans or fish, depending on the species. So we can follow the the mother and her calf. Those are together. Sometimes they have an escorting male. We still don't know why the male hangs around with the female, whether he's waiting for a mating opportunity or whether he's simply maybe the father of the previous year. In fact, we disproved that genetically. He certainly isn't the father of the previous year. But on the other hand, other males will sit there singing. You've heard of the song of the whale, and it's amazing. You can actually hear this song above the water. So you're on a boat, and you hear this amazing... Incredible sound coming. He deserves a round of applause (laughs) for
1: that.
4: (laughs) And these guys sit there, 30 foot down, making this incredible sound, and each male has a different song, and we really don't know why. Occasionally another male will come along and perhaps challenge that male and then sit in the same place singing his song. But nobody, to my knowledge, has ever seen a female visit the male and mate with the male... Maybe they're just amusing themselves. We don't know.
1: (laughs) So will the ultimate aim, then, you're going to follow these guys and then do this genetic testing to see if that male ever does end up being a father of next year's calf? And it's just that you end up with a sort of escort, escorting someone else's baby, but with an aim to, to mate the next year?
4: Absolutely. Well, we're interested in any kinds of relationships with their. The other group that seems much more oriented to mating is they call them rowdy groups which is a bunch of males who all seem to be fighting for position near to a male, who we kind of assume is fertile and is able to conceive at this point, and they're really violent. You may have seen documentaries of them slamming into each other. Again, we really don't know who's the winner, whether any of them are the winner. Maybe the female just finally gets rid of them and goes and chooses the male she actually wants as a partner. So these are big questions, and you can answer them genetically. Any questions for Bill?
0: My name is Cassian,
3: and my question is... You said that when whales swim, their skin comes off. Well, how does their skin come off?
4: Well, it's just like people... The skin is the layer that separates you from the environment. And the environment is harsh. It's got sunlight coming down, you might get sunburn. There is a theory that even whales get sunburned, believe it or not, if they stay at the surface too long... So one of the defences that all animals have is to keep shedding the outer layer and keep replacing it from underneath. So if you cut your finger, you don't have a cut for life. Soon the skin grows over and mends that cut. So it's constantly replaced. And when does it come off? Well, it comes off a little bit all the time. But if you suddenly move and you're a whale in the water, then you shed a bit more than you would do normally. And that's when you find the bigger pieces. Georgia.
6: What happens to all the barnacles and things that live on the whales when they shed
4: their skin? Some whales, not all of them, but some species have barnacles which live on them for varying lengths of time. You may notice the right whale, ironically it's called the right whale because it was the right whale to hunt. (laughs) And it's the right whale to hunt because it's the only whale that floats when it's dead. And if you've just harpooned a 50-ton animal that sinks and you're in a small boat, (laughs) you haven't done yourself a lot of favours. So the, the right whales have these crusts on the front of their faces, which are white and crusty. And those are barnacles, and they stay on for life, as far as we know. They clearly have evolved mechanisms for staying there very thoroughly, mostly... Animals that try to sit on the whale and use it for something to grow on are shed pretty rapidly. Whale skin is very dynamic and they're capable of losing any unwanted passengers.
5: I'm Emily, and what if you get hit with the fluke of a whale? Can you just tell us quickly what a fluke is?
4: The fluke is the name you call the tail of the whale. The fluke of the whale, particularly the big whales, is a huge weapon. They use it against each other, they use it for signalling... If they hit a diver with it, that diver would not be a diver anymore, (laughs) unfortunately. He'd he'd go into the marine ecosystem. (laughs) So they're very powerful. I don't know if you've seen film of it, but one way killer whales hunt fish is they school them into a big ball where the fish don't know what's happening and they're milling around in what looks like a glitter ball of fish swimming around. One of the whales will come in and smack the ball hard with the tail, and it's so powerful, you see the water is suddenly full of all these stunned fish. So he doesn't have to swim after them, he can just hoover them up where they are. So it's very powerful. Hi, my name's Bob. Can you say roughly how much genetic variation there is between members of the same species of whale or between whale species, and how much there is in common between human DNA and whale DNA? There's a lot of variation in whales and there's a lot of variation between the species of whales such that you can use genetics to identify not only different species of whale but also which ocean they came from. And I've been asked to do some work in the past when they, were, they got suspicious shipments of some kind of meat and they wanted to know whether it was an illegal species of whale. And I did some genetics and I was able to tell them that the particular shipment was in fact minky whale meat, which is the smallest of the baleen whales with the big throat pleats, and it probably came from the Pacific Ocean. And that made sense. It was a box in the Far East. And in fact, the reason they were suspicious, the customs officer said, well, it did have whale meat in large letters on the outside. So I guess that raised their suspicions. In terms of the difference between humans and whales, there is plenty. Clearly, we're very different to look at but we know that we are 99% similar to chimpanzees. So if you get a stretch of 1,000 of your DNA letters, then only 10 of them on average will differ between us and chimpanzees. Between whales, it's probably more like 2 or 3%, but it's not massive. You can still, the genes are entirely recognisable. Many of the genes are in the same order on the chromosomes. Actually, mammals aren't that old in terms of the divergence of the DNA, What matters is how the genes have changed very subtly. Don't forget that if you get one mutation, you might have a really nasty disease, or one mutation might make your eyes blue as opposed to brown. Small changes can make a big difference in genes.
1: I'm Scott. Uh, I belong to Emily. My question is actually for the entire panel. I'm sure there's tons of young aspiring marine biologists out there. What would be the one bit of advice you would share with them, I guess, early on?
4: I think an undying passion, really. Passion gets you a long way. If you're really bright, that's great, because some of the academic stuff is tough. But there are niches in which most people can work. Some people are really good at organising and chatting to people, and they can do fundraising for conservation. Some people are really good at writing. They can go into science journalism. So enjoy school and get the best out of school, and just be passionate about it. I... Ironically, at school, the one subject I really hated was genetics. (laughs) And I actually chose my degree course to avoid doing genetics. But actually, when I started doing the degree, I did some genetics and I thought, wow, this is cool. (laughs) You suddenly see something, you get the inspiration, take
0: hold of it. Mark Spalding, what would you say? I second the passion thing. I think if you've got the passion, it'll take you a long way. I'd also really say... Get experience. If you can get experience wherever you are, even just getting out and volunteering with people with organizations, going along to universities and saying, Can I help? this kind of thing, just it sets you ahead of the crowd because it is quite a competitive field to find work. But enjoy it and get experience.
1: Violet?
3: Yeah, that's basically what I was gonna say. Get out there, get experience, do some volunteering go along to things like a bird ringing demonstration for example if you just want to see what these things are like i think field work's really important to energize your your passion if you have it and um yeah help it grow and then yeah you can set yourself ahead of other people who haven't done that and you actually know i I think people can get if people are just very academic they don't know what they're actually engaging with anymore you know it's all very well understanding the evolution and you know knowing how to measure things but if you don't really know why you're doing it if you haven't seen the organism you can maybe lose touch with that and i think it's good to to really get your hands dirty sometimes
2: lloyd yeah i'd say don't be afraid of asking questions if there's something that you're interested in then ask questions about it find out about it and don't be
1: afraid of chasing a dream just follow that dream down that's a very nice place to finish please join me in thanking very much our panel who are lloyd peck viola ross smith mark spalding and bill aimer Thank you very much, Eugenia Smith and Georgia Mills, and also Grae Jackson and Kate Lamble. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.